Hello, everyone. Welcome to Commentaries from the Edge. This is Karen Goldberg, and here's what's coming up. I am delighted and pleased to welcome Tracy Newman, who, by a simple definition, is a television writer-producer and singer-songwriter. But that doesn't scratch the edge of the contribution that she's made to some of our most iconic shows in the American culture. And that means, of course, American culture and the way it influences the whole world. So I feel very honored that she's taking the time to be with us today. So welcome, Tracy, and thank you so much. Thank you. And before we begin, I want to tell our listeners uh, at least some details a little bit about your background, which is that Tracy started as an, a Los Angeles folk singer in the 1960s, which by the way, was in Los Angeles, California. It was a big time for folk singing here. And then in the 70s, became a founding member of the Groundlings Improvisational Theater, which is a very important place here in Los Angeles on a pretty famous street called Melrose Avenue. And this Groundlings Improvisational Theater ended up becoming far more important than simply a local theater. And that is because it became a place that inspired the beginning casts and, and sort of the contributed to the whole development of our famous Saturday Night Live, which has now gone on for more than 40 years. And some of the people that came out of the, the improvisational theater there, just to give our listeners a hint, are people like Kristen Wilk, Melissa McCarthy, Will Farrell, Phil Hartman, and Tracy's younger sister, Lorraine Newman. Later on, after working in the improvisational theater, Tracy took that experience and of course was so involved with comedy and became a television writer with a partner, John Stark. And they had a very successful 18-year career in television writing. For an example, uh, starting off as part of the staff of the Cheers television program, which, of course, is renowned and was the top of the of television programs for 10 years in its, in its initial productions. And then Tracy and her partner went on to be on the writing staff of the television program, The Nanny, The Drew Carey Show, and the sitcom Ellen. Now it was at in that staff writing of Ellen that they won the Emmy in 1997 for writing the piece, the Ellen's groundbreaking piece, we would say that had to do with her coming out episode, announcing to the world that she was gay. They also, she and her partner, Tracy and her partner, co-created According to Jim in 2001. And then she left the show and TV writing itself in 2003 and made a full circle back to her music. Since then, she's been recording and performing her own songs, both creating CDs for adults as well as, well as for 
young people and kids, which we'll get into as we as we talk. So Tracy, amazing trail <laughs> of accomplishment and creativity. And I thought, you know, why don't we start with kind of looking at since I, I will admit to our listeners that Tracy and I grew up uh, and we had some shared childhood here in Los Angeles, California. And what was going on in your home life that seemed to nurture so much creativity and especially a lot of good laughs from your comedy? Before I answer that, can I just correct one thing? Uh, oh, Kristen, please do. Kristen Wig is, I must have spelled it W-I-L-G. I meant to put W-I-I-G. Oh, okay. Thank you. Because yes. people love her so much and I, I love her so much. Yes, and and there you. are so many more big stars from the Groundlings, but those are highlights. Anyway, um, you know, for me, what was going on at home, <clears throat> first of all, I'm nine years older than Lorraine. Lorraine um, is, is from, a, you know, my mother and a different father. So uh, before the twins, Lorraine has a twin, before they were born, uh, in my house was just my older brother and me, and show business was not nurtured uh, at all because my, my parents, our parents had been in show business and had had to give it up because of money and children and all, you know, the usual right. things that happened to people. And, uh, they couldn't, it was like the year, those years, they couldn't make a living. And, um, so I, you know, when my mother saw me playing guitar and singing, she, she wasn't, particularly interested but which, which it's funny how something like that works the opposite way yes your parents want it right to, you know I wanted to get her attention so I got better and better and better at it you know <laughs> which by the way never got her attention it didn't matter you know I had to leave home to realize that I had you know these so-called chops <laughs> to actually do anything you know not to be like necessarily a successful folk singer in terms of like Judy Collins or Joan Baez, but you know, I worked and yeah, I, I went to New York and I worked all the time. But, and it was the heyday. Of, yeah, it was definitely of, the heyday. It was the heyday we were, of folk singing. Yeah, we were very much in demand. Yeah, it, it was, it was an amazing, amazing time for so, folk singing. So then basically how did that, so here you, you know, you grew up playing the guitar, singing, being part of that that culture. And then, of course, a new decade comes. And I think, you know, it's really interesting for people, especially, I would say, people in the United States. And I know we, you know, we have an audience worldwide, but there, the idea of, of improvisation, of doing a show without a fixed script was really right. uh, revolutionary and and it as it as it evolved in the 70s and the groundlings how how because that's such an important cornerstone of of the way I mean I would say the groundlings and probably second city in Chicago yes would be the two that that um really were the pioneers in this kind of what what, what you would call an art form of of performance how did how did it all come about that you came together with these people for the ground doing the groundlings well you know the, gary austin is the name of the the director who started the groundling the class that became the groundlings um 
you know. What, he, what do you mean by a class? Well, you we mean were, like teach, a teacher? He was a teacher. Yeah, he had come to L.A. from San Francisco. He had been in the committee, which was another improv group, kind of older people. I older. Right, right. <laughs> I then. say older yes. because <laughs> older than we us, like a little bit older than us now. <laughs> but anyway. Um, they, uh, so he started a class at a place like, uh, at first in Vermont called the Cellar Theater. And that class was interesting because it had like Craig T. Nelson, you know, who, who was a big star in the series coach and, uh, and was in, um, Poltergeist and everything. I mean, he, he's, he was, he was very well known and, uh, uh, several Tim Matheson, who was in, um, Animal House, and I mean, it had some celebrities who were at that time were mm-hmm. starting to be celebrities. Starting, uh-huh. but it also had people who were about to burst onto the scene, and then it had people like me who were just—I had just gotten back from New York. I had been very much exposed to improv, but hadn't done very much of it. But I had watched enough of it to kind of understand it, and uh, it was terrifying for me. Terrifying, and I brought Lorraine there. And um, this class turned into, you know, we started doing shows at the Cellar Theater because we didn't know where else to go. So it was just a class that started to do shows. And then we decided to name ourselves. It's, you know, this is the way things start. You know, you just, uh, it just sort of lopes along, you know. And then Lorne Michaels and Lily Tomlin came to, we, we were, we moved to a place called the Oxford Theater near Western. And uh, Santa Monica and uh, Santa Monica Boulevard. And um, Lily was looking for people to be in her special. And Lauren Michaels was producing, I guess, and directing it, too. And uh, they chose Lorraine and they chose a number of other people uh, to be like extras on the thing. And um, you can still see if you go to YouTube and you put Lily Tomlin's special, it'll show you one of the sketches Lorraine was Amazing. in. It's so brilliant. Amazing. Where, they, where she and Lily and this woman, Valerie Bromfield, all three of them did the Valley Girl in, uh, this, in this sorority sketch. It's Each has a different take I on it. It's so imagine. funny. Anyway, uh, and that's where I, you know, I, I grew up, Lorraine grew up with me, but I, and I knew she was funny, as was her twin, uh, but I had no idea until she came to that class, till I brought her to that class how funny. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that she did characters, for instance. I knew she did voices and stuff at home, but I didn't know they were full-blown characters at, a, at such an early age. Well, maybe she didn't know either. I mean, she maybe, might not have. I don't was, know. Maybe it was the at- this atmosphere that, you know, unlocked that for her. Yeah. Because, but, but in a way, you know, it's, I, I'm just thinking when you're describing this, it, it's almost like on a, on a, uh, creative artistic level it's kind of the way tech businesses have started in the garage you know exactly where somebody exactly you know, decides thing. to fool around in their garage and ends up with google yeah i mean it's kind of it, it's amazing how what when you were saying how things just kind of you know pr- the process of there, there's so many great things that happen that start in this very small uh innocuous way well it starts with playfulness you know you're playing we, we never imagined this was going to turn into something that lasted 50 years. Who would know that? We, we All we did was we did what we wanted to do. We were having fun. 
So yes. maybe for some people who, you know, there are people that have never been to an improvisation. I mean, of course, Saturday Night Live is all over the world, but but people have never been to a live improvisational experience. Maybe just because I, I have, and the reason I'm, I'm wondering, you know, about that is that it, it describe exactly, let's say, you know, an audience comes in, they sit down and they're ready for a live improv show. What, what are some of the things, what's some of the techniques that, that happen? at that moment well you know the things have changed over the years with all i mean in the beginning i'm talking about in the beginning so back in the beginning it really was the kind of thing like the director would come out and get a suggestion for some type of scene and then he'd bring two of the performers up and they'd have to do it right so by that when you say so suggestion for a scene might be uh just two people working at the post office yeah right somebody would raise their hand in the audience right yeah and yeah, then the director would say, "Okay, what do you, what do you, what do you want?" So yeah, the so audience was actually choosing the material. Exactly, so that you know that so that the audience knows they're making it up right then. Yes, so that's that could be terrifying. As yes, you said, to the <laughs> it's terrifying. <laughs> and, and yet, and yet, at the same time, you know, for people that are that love that kind of thing, it's the best in the world, right? Yeah, there are people who are so gifted they're not scared. Yeah, that, that, that's what I'd say. That, that that's you, what it comes you look down. At someone like uh-huh. when, when Phil Hartman came to the Groundlings, it was a revelation for all of us because here for the, he came out of the audience. You know, we asked for an audience participation thing. He came out of the audience and blew everybody off the stage, and we were good. I mean, people were really? good in the Groundlings. Yeah, right, was, right. He was so not scared and so dynamic immediately that you know people like that started appearing at the groundlings and it was it was just uh, so exciting so how long how long did the, the as as that group and the groundlings how long did that last um well uh, you know it's it, we didn't have a school back then you know if you wanted to join the groundlings you just joined mm-hmm. <laughs> you right know? and you could be in the show if you had a good a good sketch or you were a terrific improviser so uh I, I was there for 15 years in the actual show. And after the, once I left though, the place was so established by then. I was teaching still, but I stopped being in the shows because I was uh, older than everybody. I was 10 years older than everybody at the beginning anyway. And right. uh, because I was like 30 when we started, everybody else seemed to be in their early twenties. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so, then, so that, yeah, so it's, it stayed and, it was, and then of course the Melrose Theater. We built the Melrose Theater. Archie yeah. Hahn, who was a builder, a contractor. I mean, he was an improviser, very, very funny. But he was the one who, who designed and built it. So this is, yeah, th- this was a whole period in Los Angeles where, uh, where this kind of live theater, improvisational theater, was really a centerpiece of a lot of the life of 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 uh, people going out in the evening, right? And coming, oh, absolutely. Coming, and I mean, you'd hardly meet anybody that even, you know, even whatever, however tick the important that uh, or expensive the tickets were, people would save money to be able to go to the ground lane. So, yeah, I and it was, so I think- Yeah, you that, know, you would, uh, Pee Wee Herman is the one that probably of all things, Pee Wee put us on the map. I mean, not that we weren't, I mean, Lorraine- Lorraine Newman, obviously, being taken out of the groundlings and put on SNL was a big thing that put us on the map. That's Saturday Night Live, yes. Right. Mm -hmm. When Pee Wee came along, when Paul Rubens, that's his name, came along and invented, you know, came up with the Pee Wee character and started doing the Pee Wee show, 
everybody was trying to get in. The audience was just, it was always packed and has always been packed ever since then. Yeah. Yes. So how, how wonderful that you, um, you know, that you, that that's a trail that you've left uh, a legacy for, for, you know, all these decades. Yeah. And it's, you know, Gary, Gary Austin and Tom Maxwell. I have to mention Tom because without Tom Maxwell, those doors wouldn't have stayed open because he was the only one that didn't drink. And he would be, he would be (laughs) opening the door with a key at nine in the morning. You know what I mean? Yeah. That that kind of, uh uh-huh. Yeah, and he was so a terrific have one, director. You have to have one person like that. Yeah. That, that holds everything together. In the way that Lorne Michaels has done that in many ways, right? Yes, yes. With Saturday Night Live. So, you know, you moved on from the Groundlings, and now it makes sense that you would have this incredibly, you know, you almost like had a school for yourself of developing comedy, right? And then it, yeah. it sort of makes sense that you could move from that into television staff writing comedy because you were meeting a lot of people that might give you opportunities for that right yeah which is the thing that people need to really understand you know when you get to Hollywood it's who you know well you know they say it's who you know it isn't quite that simple if you start in a beginning groundling class for instance in the school those people that you're in class with and that you move up with, those are the future of show business, of comedy and show business. Those are the deep friendships that you make. And so one person goes off and they're writing a hit show and another one goes off and they're starring in a hit show and they need somebody to do this or that and they remember you from the class. And they say, let's bring him in. We got our first break on Cheers because the people running the show at the time were, were, at the, were, were groundlings. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't get breaks like that unless you have a depth of, uh, it's not just, as I say, it's not just who you know. You know, if you're somebody's daughter who was in show business and they send you to a friend of theirs, it's not as important, you know, as if you start at the Groundlings and you get to know these kids and that's your group. You know, I I think that's so important what you're saying because actually you could apply that to almost every career, Everything. you know, every yeah. kind of work is that, which is so, it's why it's very important that everybody kind of, you know, take a chance with what you really want to do and go out and get connected to mm-hmm. something in which you can show your, you, you need to have time with other people to show other people what you can do. And you need to be able to fail in front yes. of other people and for them to see you stand back, get back up, and keep doing it. They they see the depth of your ability and everything. It's like when they then recommend you for something, they know what they're recommending. Yes, right. And and because of also what you just said that you know if you impress people with your relationship and with your whatever it is, whatever skills and talents you have, then when they have an opportunity, they remember you. That's right. That that's the key. Like mm-hmm. you said, not just the fact that they know you. Right. But, but they have a vision about you. Yeah. You know, what, what, who you are and what you can do. They have a confidence in you that's, that's time honored. Yeah. And, and I think that principle can apply for so many different opportunities and careers. Yeah. People, I think kids look- come into this business so impatient, you know, rather than saying, this is, you know, if you're in for the long haul, yes, you can go to the groundlings and you can take this, be in the school, which takes a, a couple of years these days. Uh, get in the company 
and be discovered and be a star within five years. That can happen. But most of the time what happens is you discover you enjoy the writing more and you get on staff at some show with somebody who was in the groundlings with you. I mean, that's really common. Which is what happened to you. Yeah. Which is what, so, and you know, since you, yeah. So you, you've walked that path and I think, you know, you know, of course everybody, I'll I'll go out on a limb and say, everybody watches television (laughs) at some point or another. And, um, well, certainly in the last two years. Yes. Well, certainly, <laughs> yes. In particular, in the last in these pandemic times that we've lived yeah. in, and um, so you know, I think a lot of people are very curious about how how television writing works because um, you know you you watch people with saying the most amazing dialogues with each other, mm-hmm. and sometimes I think as as audience forget that in fact there had to be people sitting around writing those words. So how did, how, tell us a little bit about television writing and maybe, you know, the, the, the infamous writing room. Yeah, this is like a whole other episode. Uh, you know, I can just break well, it down I and know. tell you that, that you're, you're given an assignment if you're a writer. My partner and I were, would be given an assignment to write a particular show. They want to feature Cliff on, you know, on Cheers, you know, the, the postman. Or something like that. They say, let's do a show. Let's let him have a show and we'll, let's write him, you know, a show. So we, we pitch out ideas and everybody, the whole room gets together and they decide on what the show, what in general, what they want, what they want it to be. We go off and write an outline, a very detailed outline in that show. And how Uh, many people are in the room? Sometimes uh, it, it varies. I've been in shows where it's like, 10 people and sometimes 15. Uh, it seems like all the shows I was on had that many people. I mean, I know that there are shows with less people. But, but the, the Cheers, for instance. that The Cheers be- was about was about 12 people. 12, 12 people. And, and, and in that room, were they just writers or there's other people in that room? That- well, it doesn't matter. There are, everybody's mm-hmm. a writer in that show. You know, I see. The, 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 uh, everybody started out as writers. It's true. When they get to be executive producers and they're running the show... They don't write as many episodes, but they're in the writer's room most of the time and they're guiding everything and they're the final say. So, so as you said, you go out with your partner and you write a very detailed outline of, of what? What is the outline? Of, of, of let's say, a, a half hour episode featuring, let's say, Cliff. I mean, I'm not sure everybody remembers who Cliff is. John Ratzenberger. You know, he was the uh, postman. The postman, you know, who was full of full of himself yeah (laughs) anyway uh and then the they they send the outline to the network the studio and the writer's room and everybody the writer's room then kind of has at it you know they tear it apart usually and put the pieces back together and they they want to go a different way or they or they think it's fine what you did you know usually that's not the case but they change it and then after, um, you know, they've had their say and the network and the studio have had their say, you go off and write a script. You bring the script back to the writer's room and they have at that again. And they almost invariably change every single joke. I mean, it's remarkable how fast that happens. It could happens in one day. 
they, they just they don't change the story because they've already everything's been approved story wise. But it's amazing how they'll go through and come up with better jokes, no matter what so, you did. So if they're going to change everything anyway, why are they bothering to have the two of you go and write a script? Because it's like a template. Mm-hmm. It's like this happens and then this happens and then this happens. That's not going to change. But what I they're think. saying is the thing that will change. Okay. They think, you know, especially if they've been on Cheers, you know, for five years and you're new, they're going to change yeah. every joke. You might have one joke left when it's time to, you know, <laughs> but the structure of it, you wrote, you know, along yeah. with their, with their help, you know. So, so it's a group. So it's really, so it's a very group. much a group effort when you're standing on the uh-huh. stage and the, and they introduce you as the writers of the, of the episode, the first time that happened to us, I thought to myself, I'm waving to the audience and they're applauding me and I didn't write one word of this. (laughs) And then the next week, maybe I get a few jokes in and I think, all right, somebody else is getting credit now for Uh writing that script. And I have some jokes in there. And as you go along, you have more and more stuff, more and more input, but other people, if you know, so it, it all comes out in the wash, you know, so you have to you have to really be a collaborative personality. Yeah, you know you can't. You're that. That's where ego. That some of the funniest people in the world can't get in a writer's room and stay there because their egos are too big. You know they'll they'll if get I angry can, if I they're can imagine just, that. I yeah. can imagine that. Yeah. No, you have to. Yeah, you have to be willing to to let that go. Yeah. That feeling. So. Um, of the of the shows that you wrote on, which one did you feel that you you had the most input in and, and well, I mean, most you satisfaction? Know, according to Jim, because that was our own show. Uh huh. I see. You know, and before that, right. we did a thing called Hiller and Diller with Richard Lewis and Kevin Nealon and Eugene Levy that I particularly enjoyed writing. It didn't succeed. It lasted one season. We didn't create it, but we executive produced it. That was really fun. And we had a lot of input. So you, but in general, it sounds like those 18 years were, were really quite heady because you were on these these shows that, that became so important on television. Yeah, you know, um, it's long hours though. I just, you know, the thing is I had a daughter and I have a daughter and when she was six, I started writing having a day job essentially on on staff writing shows and it's long hours at cheers it wasn't because they had their their stuff together you know (laughs) after we we joined them on the their 10th season oh you got in at 10 o'clock and you left at six that was it Mm -hmm. but on the all the other shows like the nanny we left you know after midnight and just long, long hours. Oh, Same with Drew Carey. And on Ellen, some some years we were, it was really long hours and other times it wasn't. Depends on the showrunner. So that those are things that people don't realize, you know, that no. I mean, that, that the kind of, what uh, I would say, physical labor that goes into simply the writing of the show. It's, ex- it's and, uh, and, interminable. And how, yeah, and how exhausting that is and that and that's such an important uh you know part of the culture without without the writers we wouldn't be turning our television on right and i'd say that my my first tv writing staff job on which was cheers i was uh 
somewhere between 46 and 48. I'd have to work that out. So to be hired to write TV as an older woman like that, my bosses were in their mid-20s, guys, you know, Harvard Lampoon kind of guys. And uh, it was daunting. But, you know, my partner was 10 years younger and a man. And we we survived. You, you met. You did it. Yes. Well, you had yeah. you had a lot of courage, which, of course, is, you know, it's essential for anything. And, you know, the same, you know, the thing about ageism in TV, it has more to do with burnout. Uh huh. You know, after 20 years of writing TV, I know there are people when you look at James Brooks and uh, David Kelly and all these people who, have, or, you know, or Larry David, who are. Uh, the creators, and that's all they do. You know, they in other words, they don't, nobody they don't changes stop. what they do. Yeah. But, you know, and then their egos are intact. But people like my partner and I, I'm not saying we aren't good writers or bad writers or whatever we are. We, we, we are not like them, at least not in my mind. Yes, right. You know, we're, we're more like uh, yeoman or whatever that's called. We're, uh-huh. we're uh, worker bees. The you know? And then we're creating, worker. when we created yeah. According to Jim, uh, you know, yeah, we were starting to get to the point where we were going to be in charge and everything. And we were, we were the leaders, but that was when I decided to quit because I had already been doing it for 18 years. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I'm 62. That was a long time. I want yeah. to go back to being a singer songwriter because the world needs it. And <laughs> yes, and I need to be in a room with where there are 10 people in the audience and singing and playing my guitar. You know, I mean, it was sort of funny that I did that, but I really enjoyed it. Well, I think, you know, that happens for everyone also that you sometimes you you just go into different phases of your life where your needs are very different. And um, and also, you know, the other thing you've done is you made a full circle where you started sing, singing and songwriting and you've gone back to it. And I think, you know, that's another thing that's really can be a wonderful thing in life is to, you know, recapture some of your talents from the past at, at a, a later stage in your life. So um, we can we kind of move into talking about that because uh, it would be great to know some, uh, mention some of the, the accomplishments you've had as a songwriter and, what are your plans for the future? And where, where can we, if we live in Los Angeles, California, or are coming to visit as many people, millions of people are going to be coming this summer. <laughs> is there any, is there any place they can come to see you and hear you? I don't know. You know, I, uh, since the COVID, since the lockdown, yes, my life has grossly changed. I mean, when I say gross, I don't mean in a bad way. I mean, just in a big way. And uh, I have been sick ever since my grandson started going back to preschool. I've been sick with the cold <laughs> that keeps happening. And I have to, in order, in order to stop it, I'm going to have to stop seeing my grandson for a while because it's, uh, I can't sing right now. And so this has been happening now for about yes. six months. Yes. And uh I am singing. I'm doing a lot of Zoom open mics. That's really what I've been doing because uh, just to keep my sort of my fingers in the pie. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But um, I have some gigs coming up. I have, I'm doing something in, um, I don't know the name of the area. I thought it was, uh, you know, I can't think of where it is. It's, it's, I can't, I'd have to look it up. Well, we'll men uh, you know, I will mention that in the description uh, that I will be writing. Is there a place called Loma Vista? Episode? 
yes. sure, a Loma Vista. I think that's I where it is. is. A really good show. And anyway, but but uh, what I was going to say is they can they can hear my music for grown-ups if they look up Tracy Newman and the reinforcements. Unfortunately, I, I named my group something that's hard to remember when I had a band. But mm -hmm. all my adult songs, uh, you know, songs for grown-ups are on three CDs. Not all that I, not all my songs, but you know, the ones I recorded. Um, and it's Tracy Newman and the Reinforcements, and I'm on all of the the um, platforms. And the stuff for children, it's just Tracy Newman, and then you know, you just look for children's music under Tracy Newman. Wonderful. Well, I know that you've you've been in some of the important venues here in Los Angeles, California, like. Uh, McCabe's Guitar Shop, which is yeah. located in Santa Monica. Mm -hmm. You've also been uh, in uh, Gulick's, I believe, in North Kulak's. Kulak's. Yeah, Kulak's, which is, in, I believe, almost closing now, unfortunately. In, I'm sh yes. Well, of course, because of the pandemic and the impact of coronavirus, so many venues in cities across the United States and all over the world, probably, also have closed. Um, yeah. But I know that that you know you've you've had an opportunity to play and 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 have audiences enjoy your your music and your songwriting and so I, I you know what Karen the best way to see me right now is to go on YouTube and look up my channel just Tracy Newman channel and it's a variety of things those videos from 1965 that are black and white that are really fun and. Uh, uh, and I did the Carson show that's there, but, you know, not singing, but doing something else. And, uh, you know, just playing McCabe's, those, those videos, it's all on my channel, really. Excellent. Well, Tracy, thank you so much for taking this time and, and for, thank you for having me. This was a treat. It's such a, a treat to have you to hear, uh, the trail of, of, wonderful things that you've done the contributions you've made to people enjoying themselves and as you said now you know we we're in another time we need folk songs we need we need to sing we need we need to sing with you and mm -hmm. uh we need to to work at keeping our spirits up in a very difficult and challenging world so thanks for being there and thank, thank you, you so much for being on the show my pleasure bye-bye bye-bye Till late one night in the lobby of the plaza, John Lennon shouted out her.